Hello everybody, it's James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses Podcast, and today I want to tell you about a person. His name is Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci is a very important character. In fact, he's probably the linchpin between historical Marx and present-day everything on the left that's gone out of control anyway. Present-day leftism. Antonio Gramsci... Um, I don't really have, by the way, super detailed notes about this, but I just kind of want to give you a picture of how important this guy is. He was an Italian Marxist. He was jailed in the 1920s, um, 1926, specifically by the Italian fascists. It, most people don't realize, given how how brutal, brutally fascistic communist regimes turn out to be, but the communists and the fascists in the 1920s and 1930s were not quite on the same side when they jailed him they said that his that they needed to silence his mind for 20 years um gramsci if you've been following some of my other stuff i've been working on you'll not be terribly surprised to find out was not in great health he was ravaged by disease it left him deformed uh very sickly very bad health problems had a hard time being able to fit into an industrial society, very linguistically skilled. So here we have a misfit who was linguistically skilled, who was an ardent communist. What a shock. Um, but anyway, when he was in prison, they didn't manage to silence his mind. He wrote copiously uh, between 1929 and 1935. He died shortly thereafter. And the collection of things he wrote has been published. It was referred to as his prison notebooks. Uh, they were an Italian, obviously. They were known to the critical theorists in the Frankfurt School. It's likely they would have been known, I don't know for sure, but it's probable that they were known to the French postmodernists. They were not, however, translated into English until 1970. They were translated at Notre Dame by a translating group uh, led by Joseph Buttigieg, who is the father of Mayor Pete Buttigieg, um, which is an interesting little connection. So one of Gramsci's lines, just to kind of contextualize how he thought about this, was that socialism, this is a quote, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. So Gramsci is often credited as the guy who's the long march to the institutions guy, even though that's he's not the one who called it that. He is the one, however, who should be credited with the development of cultural Marxism. Of course, Lukács and the guys in the early guys in the Frankfurt School were also poking at cultural issues, but they were much more interested in uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and uh, Weber's sociology, trying to apply that to Marx. Gramsci was the one who really understood, and his, this is his idea, the cultural hegemony idea. It was his key pillar that holds up the capitalist society for Gramsci is cultural hegemony. Cultural hegemony is kind of like this feeling like you have to go along with the culture. In fact, there's a lot of pressure that you have to conform to the culture. And so Gramsci's claim being Marxist was that the elites, the bourgeoisie in society created intentionally ideologies and the dominant culture to keep people trapped in their way of thinking, way of approaching the world. In other words, to keep them upholding capitalism. That's the source of the false consciousness that became prominent in the Frankfurt School critical theory analysis that people have. Um, 
So Gramsci is a major, major figure. He had some other big ideas. Uh, he was huge on the idea that there are certain pillars of culture that have to be taken on. Religion, family, education, media, law. So he was very, very uh, clear in his belief that those are the places, these sites of cultural production, where something has to happen, where there has to be this critique, there has to be this... Uh, you have to tear those things down in order to make way for the revolution if you're going to have it in Western democracies, which are not working out well for communist revolutions in the 1920s. In fact, that was the big question of the era for the, for the Marxists. Why isn't Marxism taking? He was also big on creating this idea that the working class needed its own culture um, and they needed their own intellectuals, working class intellectuals, working class education. This is what led directly, and I mean in a very straight line, both in the Brazilian context under Paulo Freire and in the American context under people like Michael Apple leading into Henry Giroux, who also discovered Freire later, to critical pedagogy. So taking over our education system with Marxist ideology can be traced back very directly to Antonio Gramsci. Uh, he had this idea that society is split between the political society and the civil society. He was a big fan of historicism. We'll talk about that a bit, but that's basically kind of the way that Hegel and Marx saw history unfolding uh, through the action of activists, really. Um, he was against Marx's later ideas like in Das Kapital of what he referred to as economism. He didn't believe that it was an inevitability, for example, that uh, the working class would become conscious by the just the machinations of capitalism, as Marx had posited in Das Kapital. He believed instead that there would have to be agitation, and in fact he believed in a two-phase revolution, which we're kind of seeing right now, where there's a cultural revolution paired with a uh, kind of a hard revolution in the classical sense after the cultural revolution has weakened the culture enough to allow it So you can kind of see Gramsci's relevance right now. We, we are going through China went through a cultural revolution and then Mao was able to come in and seize power and establish the CCP we are going through a cultural revolution right now and the political power will follow that so uh, Gramsci's often credited with this idea that, that politics is downstream from culture. And as I said a moment ago, you can tell he also understood that that, that culture is downstream from uh, from education. So he was very interested in, in those things. He also had uh, some negative thoughts on, on objectivity. Um, he was actually anti-objective and he was a very strict historicist. So he thought that everything was contextual to the time and I guess place in which uh, it, it arose. So um, his biggest influence, I, I am going to continue to talk more and more about the influence of Hegel and his phenomenology of spirit. So the early Hegel, the so-called young Hegel, uh, especially on the young Marx, which differs from the old Marx, as maybe you've picked up a little bit from what I've just said. Well, Gramsci's, one of his chief influences um was a, another Italian thinker, perhaps one of the most famous and, and influential Italian thinkers of the time, Antonio Lombrolia, uh, Lombrolia, let me pronounce that correctly, um, and a, an, another thinker, uh, Benedetto Croci, 
these guys were were especially uh, Croce was particularly um, an idealist, an Italian idealist. So he was influenced in the same kind of milieu that you would see Hegelian and even Kantian thought. Uh, Labrolio was very much a young Hegelian. He was an outright Hegelian Marxist. And so these thoughts, as transmitted largely through Gramsci, were incredibly influential on a much more famous name, Leon Trotsky, and the Trotskyist style or Trotskyite style approach to socialism. Um, Gramsci was uh, enamored with Lenin, and he actually... um, kind of had a whole falling out with various people when he tried to uh, indicate how Stalin had kind of deviated from Lenin uh, but it was a it was it was a complicated um, a complicated critique because he, he largely agreed with what Stalin was doing but thought that Stalin was going too far which is obviously correct and so in a sense you could say that Gramsci was a Leninist style person in other words he believed in particular and this is I guess a starting point for kind of his his historical background he was watching he believed in particular that the uh, Leninist style approach was going to be necessary In other words, there was going to be the need to form a communist party out of intellectual elites, very much like Lenin advocated. Uh, If you don't understand Leninism, we may have to take a short sidebar into into that. But what Gramsci saw was that the Italian workers' parties were not forming a nice, powerful political bloc like Marx would have predicted. And Lenin was providing the answer to that, or had provided an answer to that in the form of his party style or communist party style approach. And so just as a very short aside in in kind of very broad strokes, Leninism is this idea that the proletariat are not going to wake up for themselves. So they need this group of elites, technically people within the bourgeoisie, so rich people who have lots of spare time and lots of angst against the society, that are going to then become deep into the ideology of Marxism, and then they will shepherd the proletariat through the revolution. So you can see this is where the party, Orwell talks about the party in terms of the Soviets, the party in terms of the CCP in China. That's where all this comes from. There's this idea that these people have to appoint themselves as the revolutionary leaders, and every time these people just march societies into the blender because it doesn't work as i've written elsewhere and talked about elsewhere they are constructing a pseudo reality marxism has some interesting critiques of society and capitalism has some interesting development of some of hegel's ideas it has some interesting views of its own but it doesn't work it just doesn't work it's not compatible with human nature it's not compatible with the way that we actually allocate resources, if you talk about it in a material economic sense, it has to be forced on people. And it gets forced on people by these parties. This is Leninism. It gets forced on people by these parties who are elite enough to understand the rarefied air of Marxist theory and then will shepherd the proletariat through the revolution, which in practice means shipping them off to gulags or killing fields or letting half of the population of China starve, or whatever it is. It never works out, because it's all based in poppycock. It's pseudo-reality. It is a pseudo-real description that 
misunderstands all of the fundamental premises of how societies are organized. So Gramsci, I want to posit, is sort of the link between that and now. Okay, so Gramsci becomes extremely relevant in the fact that his prison notebooks in particular link that Leninist-style thought to understanding that there has to be a cultural revolution to make it work. So the only, at the time, we're talking the 1920s, the only communist revolution that had worked was the Bolshevik Revolution with Lenin at the helm in Russia. There was the attempt in Hungary by Georg Lukács that fell apart. Lukács got pissed off about this, went to Germany, founded the Frankfurt School, eventually incorporated many of Gramsci's ideas. Uh, but the only communist revolution that had worked all these years after Marx had predicted its inevitability was was the Bolshevik Revolution in, in Russia and under Lenin. And so Gramsci figured that something must be going on that's right there. And what he figured out was why aren't the question was, why aren't these things happening in the West? Why are they not happening in Germany? Why are they not happening in Italy? Why are they not happening in England? Apparently, they believed these were societies, especially England, was apparently supposed to be a society that was ripe, according to Marx's theory of capitalism evolving into socialism naturally. And it just wasn't happening. And Gramsci blamed culture. He said that basically these countries had too strong of culture. They weren't just a bunch of Russian peasants. They were a people who were clear-eyed about who they were, and they had lots of deep cultural roots, and they had very effective institutions for transmitting their cultural roots. And that established what would you would call a, a cultural hegemony that would be characterized as common sense that would then maintain the so-called status quo. In other words, not allow it to become Marxist. Um, for him, culture was the collection of bourgeois values. They were culture meant at the especially at the time it didn't mean necessarily you hadn't really had the uh, cultural anthropologists coming through and kind of changing the meaning of the word culture referred to like art literature speaking properly knowing how to dine the, all, the refined aspects of participating in culture so they were identified with bourgeois values and the idea was that these bourgeois values and the promotion of these bourgeois values and the ideologies of the countries like nationalism and so on that uphold these bourgeois values prevent a class consciousness from arising. That was Gramsci's kind of key idea, and he called this cultural hegemony. That's what prevented, the so, as Marx predicted, the inevitable uh, proletarian revolutions from taking place. They were not inevitable, Gramsci realized, because culture first had to be dissolved. And so this breaking down of culture became the first and most important project. So now you, you have this split in, in communist thought, starting with Gramsci very clearly, where he saw Lenin had done something right, but more importantly, he realized that culture was the roadblock everywhere else to where now you're going to split into having a two-stage revolution, a cultural revolution that eventually demoralizes the people. And then when that is sufficiently done, then this party can step in and seize power because the culture is not strong enough and the people who are within that culture are not unified enough to be able to resist the revolution. 
it's a really nasty but also very effective tactic that, as I've spoken about in other places, liberalism is particularly susceptible to. Um, in fact, liberalism is particularly susceptible to it because liberalism takes everything, every argument as charitably as possible, and therefore it can't conceive of the idea that the goal of the communists is to destroy the thing. It can't conceive of the idea that legitimately psychopathic people are creating pseudo-real descriptions just to manipulate people in order to gain their own power because they think it will lead to a utopian revolution. And I mean that quite literally. You can read Max Horkheimer, um, his, his essay, uh, Critical, Traditional and Critical Theory, written in 1937. He's one of the kind of cornerstone guys of the Frankfurt School. Uh, he explicitly says in the essay that um, without having a utopian vision, that critical theory just kind of uh, does useless things. It has to be done in service to a utopian vision, and that utopian vision is, of course, for all these people, Marxist, um, because they were all Marxists. And they had their criticisms of later Marx. This is a fun little trick. So you can say, oh, well, they were against Marxism. They were vicious critics of Marx. They were not against the early Marx, who was basically taking Hegel's ideas, Hegel's religion, frankly, and channeling it into material society in, in, in terms of conflict theory between the, 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 the working class and everybody else. Um, so he held then uh, that having ideological and cultural control of the people is central to being able to achieve the revolution, which would proceed in two stages. First the culture, then there would be an attempt made through violence and whatever else to overthrow the existing power structures. Although ideally you would just be able to infiltrate and the, the coup would be soft. Um, no need to necessarily get violent, no need to get messy here. Uh, you would just fully infiltrate the culture of the existing institutions. Yeah, those institutions he saw that held up the pillars of culture as he, as he would see it. In other words, the domains of cultural production where Marx was interested in the domains and seizing the domains of economic production for, he says, the workers and the people. That's BS. We know it's BS. What he really meant was for his the party, the, the elites that are real, like himself that were going to guide society uh, and rule society. Um, Gramsci understood that you have to seize the means of cultural production and the places he saw that were most relevant were religion and the churches so you had to get this ideology into the churches you had to start dismantling Christianity if it's a Christian dominant uh, country or, or, or culture you have to start dismantling Judaism you have to start dismantling even Islam if you wanted to do it there if you were in China you would dismantle Confucianism and even some of the Buddhist and Taoist thought just like Mao did. Just like Mao did. So Mao, you could think of, by the way, as like Lenin 3.0. Stalin would be like Lenin 2.0. And this cultural revolution idea of Gramsci had a lot to do with that. That's how Mao proceeded. So you're going to take apart the religion. You're going to get into the churches. We see this now. This woke BS has infiltrated like every one of the major religious institutions. It has infiltrated the Southern Baptist Convention, thanks to myself and a couple of other people, hand, I don't want to say a couple, there's a dozen, a couple dozen maybe, people really fighting back. Um, we have pushed 
the Southern Baptist Convention to the point where they are now pretending to, and I want to really emphasize that, pretending to repudiate this, pretending to repudiate uh, critical race theory and intersectionality. Meanwhile, if you read what their statement was, they're saying, oh, we're against critical race theory and intersectionality, but basically we're just going to keep doing the same thing. We're still going to acknowledge systemic racism. We're still going to acknowledge the history of racism and pretend it has significant relevance today. We're still just going to do all the things that critical race theory would do. We just won't call it that. Very same trick as when Trump issued the executive order that banned lots of divisive teachings that come out of critical race theory. Uh, he didn't actually ban critical race theory. If you read the freaking order, it still says in section 10 that you can teach it. It still says you can have diversity training, but you saw the media go berserk and say he banned diversity training. He banned racial sensitivity training. And then you saw the educators saying, well, we'll just keep doing it under different words we'll, or we'll just keep doing it. And so the Southern Baptist convention is doing the same thing. It's making its way into Catholic organizations. I hear from this all the time, especially the more left-leaning ones, but it's in all of them. It's making what this new Cardinal, um, is kind of like advancing the ball for them. The, the Pope, like, don't even get me started on the Pope. Uh, the Pope is all in on this stuff. Um, it's in the Presbyterian church. I've heard from Buddhists. It's everywhere. This stuff has infiltrated the religions. The religions create an ideal delivery mechanism to evangelize for this while taking away the most important cultural bulwark that we have against adopting it. Since it's so hard with a pluralistic society like the United States, e pluribus unum implies pluralism. It's so hard outside of saying, well, we're Americans and we have this American liberal identity. It's so hard to have clear, obvious, uniting values but not in the church. It's easy there. So if you can subvert the church, Gramsci understood. Gramsci understood a hundred years ago that if you could subvert the church, you could create basically the greatest, you could, you could remove the greatest impediment while creating the greatest delivery mechanism for the ideology possible. And this is what we're seeing. The Southern Baptist Convention is pretending to back away from it. They're, they're not backing away from it. And hopefully the leaders there will stand up and continue to fight. Uh, they're right at the edge. They've got, they've got the people to say, no, this is wrong. And then, but, 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 and then they're, they're just getting taken advantage of. They're being too nice. They're not standing up. They're not standing up and saying, we've got you. We're not doing this. No, no compromise. They're saying, oh, our brothers and sisters, da, da, da. they mean well. And so all the moves are being played. You have people saying, oh, well, if we're going to get rid of critical race theory, we're out. Okay, good. Bye. Um, you don't belong here. The point, we don't want people who subvert. This is something everybody needs to understand right now. We don't want people who subvert our organizations as central players in our organizations. And if you don't understand that, you get to kiss your organization goodbye, whether it's a company, whether it's a church, whether it doesn't matter, a university, a school, an institution, a hiking club, it doesn't matter what it is. If you are going to allow people who want to subvert your organization to be major players in your organization, you are kissing your organization goodbye. Okay, enough on religion. Gramsci also understood that the family has to be, uh, the family is a key producer and transmitter of culture. It is a key center where cultural values are produced and reproduced and maintained. Uh, where transmission of cultural values from one generation to the next takes place, where people learn their core values about their country, about their 
approach to life, whether that's within religion or without. And so what do you see with BLM? We're going to disrupt the nuclear family. Of course we are. Of course they are. Of course. Because you have to disrupt the family because the family is a rock-solid core of people you can always turn to. If the rest of the world turns its back on you, you should be able to turn to your family. You disrupt the family, people have nowhere to go. The only place left to go is the ideology, frankly, or the state uh, that's enforcing that ideology. So he understood you have to disrupt the family. And we see the attacks on the family constantly. Nuclear family has to be dismantled. This is, this is so common now that it, it, it's been in almost every major publication. Um, he understood that we have to... Uh, ha- one of the pillars of culture is media. So therefore, you, the, the ideology of Marxism has to subvert, infiltrate and subvert um, media production. Well, come on. <laughs> Look at where we are. Right? They've got media. There's luckily enough internet to where there's alt media that's thankfully saying something different. The problem is, is all of the resources that the major media have and all of the trust that they've built up over years takes a while. I mean, they have tons of stuff and alt media has to compete against that. And so they, they look kooky. And in fact, they will say kooky things and they will get things wrong more often because they don't have the same level of resources. They don't have the same level of uh, built-up experience, institutional knowledge, and so on. But anyway, we clearly see that Gramsci's plan to infiltrate and subvert media has gone very successfully. Law is another producer of culture in Gramsci's view. Law has been very successfully infiltrated as well. Critical race theory arose in law. It arose out of critical legal theory, which was an early attempt at this project, by infusing it with race. Because somewhere in the 1930s, if you listen to the testimony of Bella Dodd speaking to the House on American Activities Committee when she testified before Congress, somewhere in the 1930s, the communists realized that to infiltrate America, their weakness would be race. And so here you have Derek Bell at Harvard Law cooking up um, critical race theory by infusing black liberation race ideology in a very paranoid way into critical legal studies, which aimed to show that the law was in fact creating oppression. That gets taken to the next level by Kimberly Crenshaw, his protege, studying under him. She is the other person credited with the creation of critical race theory. She's also the creator of intersectionality, which she adopted from earlier thought, um, the idea of intersectionality is that all oppression is linked. That's what this is all about. The Marxists believe that all society that's not Marxist is oppressive. You can read this again. I mentioned Horkheimer a minute ago in traditional critical theory. You can read it there. It's very clear. He's very explicit that that you know Marxism is science and that the scientific society is Marxist, and the same thing goes for a any non-oppressive society has to be Marxist. It's very, very clear what they're talking about, and you saw, even in Horkheimer, the seeds of intersectionality. He says explicitly that the, you, that the goal cannot be to um, pick apart um, one form of oppression or another. Uh, And in fact, it has to be all the forms of oppression at the same time. Um, I actually have the quote here, uh, I think. 
no, I don't have that quote, sorry. Um, I have a few quotes from Horkheimer written down with my notes here, yeah, but not that one. But he says explicitly that, that the goal of critical theory cannot be to critique one aspect or one branch of, of, of problem in society. It has to do all of them because they are all interlinked. That was 1937. Kimberly Crenshaw writing this stuff down in, 1990, in 1989 for the first time is not all that creative. In fact, she kind of stole the idea from, I mean, the queer theorists were talking about it. Judith Butler was talking about it before that. For example, uh, Gail Rubin was talking about it in the early 80s. The Combahee River Collective was talking about it in 1977. Um, but anyway, critical race theory, what Kimberly Crenshaw was able to do was inject that line of thought explicitly and effectively into law. And it is now... The basis of jurisprudence, even at the level of the Supreme Court, the um, case that was decided over the summer about sexual orientation and gender identity, or not sexual orientation, sorry, gender identity and maybe it was sexual orientation, uh, relied upon an analysis that saw sex, sexuality, and gender as inextricably linked together they depend on one another in a way that's generally close to intersectional. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, though, deliberately injected intersectional thought into law where it wasn't previously an intersectional thought, of course, is this idea that all oppressions are interlinked, everything's super complex, better to tear the whole thing down. All the way back to Horkheimer in 37, Gramsci had the same vision. He knew that this is what had to happen. And then the last one that I've left out as a domain of cultural production is most important. It's education. Gramsci was a huge believer in the idea that uh, we needed to have working class intellectuals, that the working class had to be educated, but not just educated. They had to be educated into a class consciousness. Um, if we borrow off of Horkheimer, Horkheimer was talking about how traditional theory is kind of like science and philosophy and logic and you know even psychology but then you have this critical theory that's kind of infused in everything and it's basically activism for his utopian dream and he's really clear he says even that the simple-minded are doing traditional theory all the time in other words common sense they're thinking they're working things out they're using logic they exist in reality instead of pseudo-reality but you have to teach critical theory He's implying that critical theory is somehow higher rather than garbage. What you're actually doing, what he's actually admitting without, I think, realizing it is that you have to indoctrinate people into critical theory. And Gramsci understood that this needed to be done in education. It needed to be done in working class education in particular. And so you have a direct line from Gramsci into Brazil, Paulo Ferreri, in the 1960s, writing The Pedagogy of the Oppressed and uh, basically wrecking the Brazilian education system, which still hasn't recovered as a result. And then um, Gramsci getting translated into English in 1970 and getting picked up by education activists like Michael Apple, eventually Henry Drew, Ira Shore, and uh, later Joe Kinchelow, some of these um, critical pedagogy guys that picked all this crap up. And their idea was that you had to use education to educate a First, earlier, class consciousness, then later, a critical consciousness. Um, critical consciousness would have been the way that Freire phrased it. So, and then that's become the main kind of thing. The modern word for critical consciousness, modern slang term, is woke. Being woke means you have a critical consciousness. Critical consciousness is the cultural Marxist 
reinvention of the idea of class consciousness, which is exactly the thing Marx was talking about. And so they understood that you had to educate the working class. In other words, you had to indoctrinate and reprogram in cult fashion the working class to create what they called work, what Gramsci referred to as working class intellectuals so that they could express the proletarian view of oppression from within in an organic fashion. This is ultimately the basis for the long march through the institutions and the main institution of relevance is education. Um, the whole point of their intrusion into education was going to be the need for consciousness raising. Of course, the feminists were also deeply tied up with Marxist thought all the way from the beginning. They weren't all Marxists, of course, but many of them were. So Marxist thought has always infiltrated this. And you've seen feminist consciousness or consciousness raising being a major project with them as well. Uh, that's the idea of, of, of Gramsci's belief that there needs to be a kind of so-called working class intellectual and whether working class intellectual has class consciousness or critical consciousness and then is teaching that critical consciousness. He's been awakened to the nature of his own oppression as somebody that's in the working class or later oppressed group as it came to be known. I would say, by the way, just as an aside, that original Marxism was about, uh, about economics, obviously. You had the working class versus the, the proletariat, the working class versus the bourgeoisie capitalists. And it was just all economic class, so you're caring about a class consciousness. Then later we had a critical consciousness that was arising, and that was really this cultural Marxism. I mean, Gramsci is the birthplace of cultural Marxism. What he's describing is applying Marx's conflict theory and other aspects of Marx's analysis and even the Hegelian form that Marx based his thought on, the young Hegelian form, uh, to these aspects of culture. But you hear what he's talking about. You don't hear race. You don't hear sex. You don't hear sexuality. You don't hear gender. You don't hear that stuff. You hear religion, family, education, media, law, high culture, later low culture. You hear Theodore Adorno talking a lot about high culture, low culture, and then mid or pop culture. And the belief that Adorno had deriving from these same lines of thought was that the mid culture or pop culture and the postmodernists believe this too. We're stealing away that that resentment underneath, that anger in the working class, and keeping them satisfied. And so that they had to be that basically pop culture had to be subverted to make people mad and to hate society, rather than to have them be entertained. Um, sort of gross when you realize what they were doing. Okay, so. Um, there's a lot there, but this is basically the idea that Gramsci had. Is education is the main place where this is going to happen. So you have the, literally the most influential and the most damaging aspects of this have taken place. First in our colleges of teacher education, then our universities, then our K-12 through schools. And at this point, you see that all of those are basically captured, and all of those have to be taken back uh, basically as quickly as possible by saying that no, teaching a critical consciousness, that's your cultural Marxist, I didn't finish that thought, I apologize, critical consciousness is not what we need to be doing. We need to be teaching people, as if we go back to Horkheimer's separation, traditional theory, we need to teach them how to be competent. We need to teach them how to think clearly. We need to teach them how not to hate their society and hate everything about it so that we can usher in some bogus utopia that exists only in pseudo-reality. Utopia literally means nowhere if you go to the Greek roots. 
but rather to understand the understand things for real and to do real work around them. So we need traditional theorists, not critical theorists. So just to back up and finish that thought, you had Marx was pure economics. And so he had class consciousness. Gramsci is your cultural Marxist. And they had this idea of, um, uh, of critical consciousness. And now we have this woke thing and it's all based on identity politics. Identity politics, by the way, isn't what happened in the 1960s in the civil rights movement. The term identity politics was coined by that same Combahee River Collective I just mentioned, which was radical lesbian black feminists. I'm not kidding. Who got together. They were at the black liber. They were angry black lesbian women who got who are in the black liberationism which is this whole thing this is what this is liberationism is is in essence what the the cultural marxism is about liberation from all forms of oppression i mean horkheimer uses the word explicitly in the essay i was talking about in the exact context where all the oppressions are linked so i refer to this identity politics came from there that term was coined in 1977 by that collective and i refer to what's been happening since the 1960s when they infused identity which has increased and became identity politics in this critical style when you hear the words identity politics it is not civil rights movement it is critical identity politics this is identity marxism so we've gone from marxism which would be economic marxism to cultural marxism which criticized elements of high and low and medium culture to identity Marxism, where they are twisting the knife in Western societies on their weakest point, which is matters of personal identity. And it's, it's, it's been very effective. They did the same thing, by the way, if you don't know, they did the same thing in China before Mao's cultural revolution in the decades leading up to that. Everything that you know about white privilege, they had a parallel concept of Han privilege, Han being the dominant race of China. Everything you know about white supremacy is the way the woke say it, the critical theorists say it. They talked about Han supremacy. They had the same freaking concepts. They had the same ideas even of fragility. The whole thing was all played out in the 20s and 30s, uh, going into the 40s in China to in the Hegelian terms, Althaib in their culture, to break down their culture in Gramsci's uh, vision of cultural Marxism. The four olds in China were what had to be done away with. Old, what was it? Old values, old ideas, old customs, old ways of thinking, something like that. The four olds, the sojiu. And so they had to get rid of those. They had to break those down. That was the cultural Marxism. That's what happened in China. That's what's been happening in the United States since the 1960s as we've transitioned into this identity Marxism because clearly it works. And clearly people who don't want to be racist, who don't want to be bigots, are low on the defenses against it, which is such crap because we're the people who actually are in the moral high ground. And they, they've cooked up this, this bogus upside down world where we've sacrificed all of our moral authority and moral high ground to them. Okay. So that's just to kind of give you a picture though. To, so to summarize, we've got so far, we've got Gramsci has this idea that the reason Marxist revolutions aren't happening is because of this thing he referred to as cultural hegemony. Cultural hegemony means that the culture itself has a kind of power that, that if you will, protects. It's like a force field that protects uh, from Marxist revolutions from kind of their perspective or that kind of sets the ways. It's like, what do people aspire to be? What do they value? And it creates a kind of power there. Um, he believed that there are key pillars that have to be infiltrated to undermine cultural hegemony are religion and the church, 
family, education, media, and law. He believed that what you have to do is infiltrate these and create a counter-hegemony. In other words, what I've called a pseudo-reality, a pseudo-real way of thinking that's enforced by a bogus logic I called a paralogic. Following, I didn't make that up. That's following uh, John Francois Leotard and and the postmodern condition, or you call it parology, um, that uses a paramoral framework. In other words, it uses the the liberationist Marxist liberationist framework, an alternative view of society. And so you're going to build this counter hegemony within the cultural institutions and this capture the sites of cultural production. That's the long march through the institutions, as it later got called. Um, worked very successfully for Mao, is working in the United States right now if we're not going to do something about it. He thought that the key of among all of these, besides maybe law, would be education. Education is the most powerful site. You see Mao created his red guard with the students. The roadmap is all here. Gramsci's an important figure. And the point is to indoctrinate and reprogram people who are in oppressed groups, whether that's so-called oppressed groups, whether that's the proletariat, whether that's racial minorities, whether whatever it is, and stoke their grievances. It is the politics of grievance, the same politics of grievance that Hitler stoked up just in a different way. You, you get that into your head. That's it's, I know that Hitler and the, the Marxists were not simpatico. They were not buddies. I know. It's the same politics of grievance, however. It's the same... He was awakening a German Aryan consciousness. They are waking up a, whether it's a class consciousness or an oppressed consciousness or a woke critical consciousness. And you're going to do that through education is a key thing. Another uh, key idea that, that Gramsci saw then is this counter hegemony. He, he understood that there, there that there's kind of two worlds within society. He said that they're fuzzy, they overlap, it's complicated. It's not just, you know, oh, here are the political people and here are the civil people. But he broke the world basically into the, the state or the, or the um, political society and then into the civil society. And his view was that the state uses force and the second it's challenged and it, it'll maybe make arguments or persuasion or coercion and the second it's challenged the fist will come out which is funny given that whose symbol is the fist right um and then that the civil society is the consenting society that has to do consent um what he believed and this is why this is important is that he believed that the political society is basically too difficult to assail when the cultural society supports it or the civil society supports it through culture so you have to wage political warfare by cultural means to undermine the cultural hegemony in civil society first and then you can attack the political society either in a soft coup or if that doesn't work in a forceful revolution the goal he had was that you want to create a regulated society that, as Marx dictated, once you, that's a socialism, basically, a regulated society, a socialism. And I'm not using regulation in the sense like, oh, well, we don't want too much smoke going in there out of our smokestacks or poisoning the rivers. A completely state-controlled, regulated society, a, a command economy, really. Um, and Marx's hypothesis was that that will eventually, once it lasts long enough, become redundant. People will realize they don't actually need the state to manage their affairs anymore. And da-da, we get to our communist utopia located at nowhere. And of course, that regulated society part run by the, 
the uh, party, the Leninist-style party, is what's going to walk everybody into the blender when it doesn't work because it really only serves the needs of a small percentage of the population at the expense of everybody else and violates both economic and human law. So it, it's not going to work out. But this is how he saw things. It's very important to realize Gramsci's the idea that there was this two-stage revolution where stage one is that you wage political warfare. The Chinese are waging political warfare against us right now, tapping into the political warfare that we're waging on ourselves from within. Why do you think they are tweeting things like the United States needs to get its racism problem under control? They know what they're doing. So political warfare first which is ultimately culture war. And so the fact that we've been embroiled in a culture war for a long time, which I would actually say has been a second civil war for at least five years, but particularly it's come to a head this year. We may be actually in a cultural world war, more or less, because we have foreign actors. Um, it's taking place all over the place, first of all, on the same battlegrounds, and we have foreign actors uh, agitating along these lines. This was basically stage one of two of, of Gramsci's vision for how communist parties, remember he became a Leninist, communist parties could seize and gain control. If you want to know what's going on in the world right now today, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Lenin was Leninism 1.0, Stalin was Leninism 2.0, Mao was Leninism 3.0, Woke is Leninism 4.0, Gramsci is the roadmap to how that works. We don't have to get too much more deep into a lot of Gramsci's thought. Gramsci was a historicist, which basically means that he followed Hegel's idea of the dialectic of history, which got translated in the early Marx into dialectical materialism, which is to say that history is going to march along a line of, of kind of progress. Although Gramsci was a very strict or an absolute, as I think the word, the phrasing is, historicist. And what that ultimately meant is that he believed that everything is located within its own historical context. Um, as a progressive kind of person heading toward a Marxist utopia, he would, of course, seen the dialectic of history. And his belief was that, that following Marx was that we had to have that the, the whole project was a project of what's called praxis. Praxis is the fusion of theory and activism. It kind of is a shorthand way to explain what that means. What that means, in other words, is what uh, Horkheimer's talking about when he outlines what critical theory is. It is, it is something that has kind of the utopia at the end vision, and a, a, there's your theory that's going to then criticize society for not living up to that utopia, and it's going to pick at every means it can to do it, following Gramsci and the, the Frankfurt School critical theorists, we're going to pick at culture, following the people after the war, starting with Marcusa, but adding in many of these other characters. Um, we're going to do it according to identity, which got much worse in the 80s and 90s as the woke movement took took flight, what we call applied postmodernism in cynical theories, uh, which I wrote with Helen Pluckrose. So Gramsci's view was very anti-idealist, to the point of being relativistic, that each period in history is kind of its own thing. So you can see how this kind of uh, precedes the postmodern view, although I don't know quite how much influence yet Gramsci had on, on say, the, the structuralists like uh, Althusser, um, who was Foucault's PhD advisor. 
uh, and the, the kind of the birth of post-structuralism and what became postmodernism. You can also, for those who know within the, the, the critical theory school, Frankfurt School, it also set up Adorno's negative dialectic. So in other words, Gramsci was stricter than Hegel. Hegel believed in his dialectic work that we were going to have a concept, a thesis, if you will, followed by a its antithesis, but I think the German term is Aufhebung for that, um, which is not quite the same as negating. It means to negate and to keep at the same time or to kind of uh, cancel but maintain. It's, it's a very bizarre German word. So the idea would be that you're going to say somebody's wrong by saying that they weren't complete enough. And then at the other end of that process, you have a synthesis that, that becomes something bigger. So you take the original statement, you say, no, not quite, and then you come to something bigger and better. That's basically Hegel's dialectic. Marx believed that applied to society in the, the kind of progress of history, and Gramsci um, wasn't as idealistic as, as these guys, especially as idealistic as Kant would have been, or even as idealistic as Hegel would have been. But he believed that the that, that what he, what that, what I mean by that is that he believed that the praxis, taking action, doing this, becoming activist, doing cultural revolution is what actually makes it work. If you don't make it work, it won't work. And they, it's also why he is a Leninist, where you have to have a party that's going to usher it in. But it sets up, anyway, Adorno's negative dialectic. And Adorno's negative dialectic drops off the synthesis part. There's apparently no summary that's neat for what Adorno meant by his negative dialectic. But in short, since there's not one, I'll give you one. Uh, it means that we're going to have our thesis and we're going to have our, our statement that, that keeps it but tears it apart at the same time, our, our, our antithesis. And then we're going to leave it at particulars. We're not going to try to synthesize into something bigger and more complete. Uh, so it's a it's a more tearing down process that Adorno was laying out. So you can kind of see, again, lots of parallels to postmodernism. So you can see how these things were going to be able to be fused later. Um, again, same kind of thing. He was against Marx's idea that there was this inevitability uh, the later Marx writing, especially in Das Kapital, that there's this inevitability of history to produce capitalism evolving into socialism and socialism evolving into communism uh, and therefore favored active revolution. And again, this is that two-stage thing. He, he criticized Marx as having kind of a naive economism is I think what he called it. Um, but this two-stage, first cultural, then political revolution in order to... Uh, install a uh, Marxist, ultimately, uh, utopia or path toward utopia. But he was a Leninist, so you can see where, where it's really going. Um, so therefore, he was against reform. He was against incrementalism. He thought that those things maintain too much of the status quo. They don't break hegemony. Instead, you have to dissolve and subvert those things and thus replace them with the new thing in, in kind of revolution. And like I said, kind of just to wrap up with Gramsci's views, he was actually anti-objective because of his strict historicism, his absolute view that everything is contingent upon the historical conditions in which it occurs. There is no technically objective location or truth. Everything is just a historical contingency. This, of course, was a key idea within Foucault, a key idea within the postmodern thought. Um, 
he got accused of being a relativist for it and denied that, but he said that there's absolutely no objective universe outside of human history. The same line, the same idea is reflected in Horkheimer and critical in his his outline of critical theory and traditional and critical theory is the name of the essay, 1937. Um, more or less, uh, like this is an this is one of the quotes I did write down from Horkheimer. Modern theoreticians of knowledge do not deny the importance of historical circumstance. So again, he's saying that all knowledge is is rooted in historical circumstance. Even if among the most influential non-scientific factors, they assign more importance to genius and accident than to social conditions. So you can hear in Horkheimer that the underlying social conditions, in other words, some kind of Marxist analysis, is what really bears on how we understand what is and is not true, what constitutes knowledge and what does not constitute knowledge. Um, he says the same, I and mean, this is Horkheimer, we're not talking Gramsci here, but another one, the, the self-knowledge of, of present-day man is not a mathematical knowledge of nature, which claims to be the eternal logos, but a critical theory of society as it is, a theory dominated at every turn by a concern for reasonable conditions of life. And those reasonable conditions of life, of course, are going to be defined by Marxist theory. That actually is the first mention of critical theory Horkheimer gives um, So, in that essay. So it is that a critical theory is one that is interested in uh, making sure that, that uh, to quote, it is a theory dominated at every turn by a concern for reasonable conditions of life. In other words, we're no longer going to be concerned with what's true. We're going to be concerned with what creates reasonable conditions of life, according to somebody who literally says that it has to be gauged against the utopia as its North Star, and that utopia is going to be Marxist. So this is the this is when 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 I say that there's this no objectivity view within Gramsci, you hear it again in Horkheimer. It's Explicit, even in this stupid two plus two equals five, they even all summer it's reverberating again now. Explicitly saying that the point of arguing that two plus two equals five, which is ludicrous, it's not true in any universe, is to dismantle the idea of objective truth. Okay, so all the way back through, all the way back, you see this in Gramsci. Everything's historically contingent. You see it in Horkheimer uh, ten years later. It's these these are the ideas that objectivity is bogus. Everything's historically contingent, and the view is the religion is is at the end of history we achieve the Marxist utopia. That's the end of history. There's no more progress to history at that point because we've achieved the harmonious utopian state. We've created God's kingdom on earth. The millennium is fulfilled. That's what this is. This is actually a religion, and Gramsci was one of its greatest theologians. And he's been very effective, and so he's a very important character to understand. Antonio Gramsci, again, Italian Marxist, uh, who was jailed by the fascists in 1926, wrote a very important series of books called his Prison Notebooks. It's actually pretty long. He wrote those while he was in prison. They tried to silence him by sending him to prison, and that totally backfired. Translated into English in 1970 apparently translated into Portuguese or something somewhat earlier. I don't know what language Ferreri wrote it in or read it in, but at any rate, became the basis for all of our critical education theory that dominates all of the schools in the West now. 
by the early 1980s. This is the long march through the institutions laid out. It's the same one that Mao used. And again, to quote Gramsci, maybe his most famous quote, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. That was his view. And this is the character upon which so much of the left's world has turned. He is the one who, in some sense, after the revolutions, the attempted revolutions, save the Russian one, failed. This is the man who reinvigorated that socialist religion, who brought it back from the edge of death by understanding and creating cultural Marxism and using cultural Marxism to lay the groundwork that allowed for the success of, as I've called it, Leninism 3.0, which was executed by Mao Zedong in China, and Leninism 4.0, which is being foisted upon the rest of the world, especially the West, right now under the brand name Woke. So lots to look into, lots to think about, lots to understand, but this has been in the works for a while. This is the thing we're up against.